Welcome to Between the Stitches, part of the Phenomenal Fan Media Group. Two former college teammates talking about what they know best, baseball. back everybody what's going on between the stitches we are here we are live we are jacked up and ready to go i just hammered my second cup of coffee so i'm so locked in it is disgusting how locked in i am right now we've recorded 28 episodes of between the stitches this is the 29th we don't have any guests unfortunately we went back to back guest episodes which i thoroughly enjoyed with peter and ryan cohen and those alike but we got some news for you guys today to talk about, I guess. The Carlos Correa saga is finally coming to an end. Finally over. Thank God, if I'm being honest with you, because I was getting pretty tired of having to sit around and talk about Carlos Correa and where is he going and what teams he's signing with and what's wrong with them and all this different stuff. It's his ankle that's wrong with him. It's apparently okay, or at least okay enough for the Twins to commit a decent amount of money to him and for him to pass his physical and to sign his contract. So Carlos Correa ended up going to the Twins' six-year deal for $200 million with a, a bunch of incentives loaded into the contract and some options, things like that. We will talk about it. And the gambling lines are out for MLB teams and their win totals for the 2023 season. So it'll they've listed odds and win totals for how many games each team is going to win and you as the better or including myself, anybody who wants to take action has the opportunity to look at the line set by the sports book and bet on the over or the under. In the case of a lot of different teams, right? For example, San Francisco Giants on the sports book are listed at 78 and a half wins. The reason they do the half is so that for the most part, you can't tie. There's a few numbers on here that are rounded, but for the most part, these numbers will feature a half, a 0.5, because you can't actually accumulate a half a win. So they do that to decide between above or below. In the case of the Giants, 78 and a half, you have the opportunity to go in and bet over 78 and a half or under. If you think they're going to win more than 70, if you think they're going to win 79 games or more, you take the over. If you think they're going to win 78 games or fewer, you take the under. That's the point of it. We're going to break it down. We're going to talk about all of it. But we're going to take this first segment and this first opportunity to talk about how Carlos Correa is finally signed to a team, okay? So before we, I don't know if this is the right way to say it or the right way to to 
he agreed to a bunch of different contracts. So I was going to say, I'll just say it. How did Carlos Correa become the first player in Major League history to sign $800 million worth of contracts in one offseason? How did he do it? Well, the timeline between Carlos Correa and the start of free agency compared to now has been a bumpy ride. It's been pretty crazy, and most people know about it, but the the actual span of time that has gone on from him agreeing to a contract with the Giants, then to the Mets, and then to the Twins, a lot of time hasn't actually elapsed. It's only been about two and a half, three weeks. So we wanted to break it down. We wanted to talk about Carlos Correa, how he was able to ink over $800 million worth of money for just himself, but he's actually going to only end up getting about $200 million, maybe more, maybe less. It depends on what's going on uh, with his contract with the Twins, how many different player options he signs, and things of that nature, right? So let's start from the beginning. Carlos Correa becomes a free agent. Actually, let's start before before this offseason and go past offseason. Carlos Correa, last offseason, is a free agent and decides, you know what, I'm going to agree to a, a essentially a one-year contract with the Twins. Essentially. It was a three-year contract, but there was a opt-out for Correa after each one of the years of the three-year contract with the Twins. He was going to be making about 35 a year if he stayed for all three years. And last year he went to Minnesota, participated in the Twins team for the one season, and decided, you know, I'm going to opt out of my contract because I'm still very young. I'm still marketable, still at the peak of my playing career and in the prime. So I'm going to opt out and test free agency. Then the rumors start swirling around, right? You talk about teams like the Giants. You talk about a reunion with the Twins. The Astros had moved on. The Cubs were looking for a shortstop. There was a lot of names, a lot of numbers, a lot of dollar signs being thrown around, including Carlos Correa in the conversations. How much is Correa going to sign for? How many years does Correa want? How much does he want per season? All that stuff gets thrown around. Then there's the huge flurry of offseason activity to start this offseason in Major League Baseball. And the shortstops were flying off the shelf. Flying off the shelf. Bogarts to the Padres, Swanson to the Cubs, Trey Turner to the Phillies. Carlos Correa is sitting back going, what do I got to do to get a contract around here? I'm better than all these guys. Or at least he, you know, he thinks. It's the it's debatable where he actually stands in, in the rankings of all the shortstops that were available in free agency. But that point is neither here nor there because the main focal point is that Correa was looking for a long-term contract and all these other shortstops were signing monster long-term contracts. Turner, 11 years to the Phillies. Bogart's 11 years to the Padres. Correa is like 28 years old. He's like, dude, come on. Where's my deal at? And sure enough, on December 14th, Carlos Correa agrees to a contract with the Giants, the San Francisco Giants, 13 years, $350 million. The important thing to note in that conversation or, or in that talking point not just with this specific agreement with the Giants, but in general, when players get reported by Jeff Passan 
of ESPN, by John Heyman, by any of the other MLB reporters or beat writers that there's a contract agreement. That's all it is, is a mutual agreement on a years and a dollar figure between the team and the players slash agent. Nothing has been signed. No physicals have been done. But it still gets reported because for the most part, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very rare occurrence that a player goes through the process of getting a physical, especially when they're a young, athletic, 28-year-old, shortstop-type player that hasn't had a ton of history of injury. It's very unlikely for them to go through the process of getting the physical and for anything to come up that would hinder the agreement to go through between the team and the player. Well, as we all know, Carlos Correa, after reaching the agreement with the Giants, had to go through the process of getting a physical, just like anybody else. He comes to the agreement with the Giants on the 14th of December. Less than a week later, on December 20th, right before the Giants were scheduled to run an introductory press conference to introduce Carlos Correa as a member of the Giants, before they have to do that official press conference. Of course, they're not just going to do it without him having signed all the paperwork and be officially inked as a member of the Giants. Right before the press conference was scheduled to go off, apparently there was enough that came back from the results of Carlos Correa's physical with the Giants medical staff that essentially raised enough red flags for them to go out back to the Correa camp back to Scott Boris, his agent, and essentially say, we actually aren't prepared to commit that amount of money and that long of a contract to a player who didn't go through this physical process unscathed. Some stuff came up, whether it was career-threatening, which in this case it doesn't sound like it is, or they just felt like it was going to be something that was going to hinder his performance, especially towards the back end of his career. Right Or just keep him on the field consistently because when you're going to pay that much money and commit that amount of time to a player, you're going to want him to play, man, like 140, 150 games. And they felt like with what they now know, that wasn't going to happen. So they canceled the introductory press conference. They re-enter negotiations. At that point, Correa is free to engage, not just with the Giants on renegotiating, but with other teams and to renegotiate with whatever they want. Less than a day later, Carlos Correa comes to an agreement with the New York Mets. 12 years, $315 million. At that point, you're thinking, Correa aside, right? How are the Mets doing this? And that was obviously a huge talking point of this offseason was how the hell are the Mets pulling off all these free agency signings? And on top of it, my first thought was, how is there something so significant and so serious that it completely wipes out the agreement that the Giants had with Correa, but the Mets seemingly just don't care? They're just going to throw money at him. Well, as it turns out, he had to go through the physical process with the Mets organization as well. And each time you go through this physical process with a doctor and they do these evaluations on your body and these scans and MRIs and mobility and x-rays and everything that you could imagine with your body, it still had to happen with the Mets just like it did with the Giants. And when those 
scans and everything else happens, they can't release the medical information that they're discovering with Correa, right? It would be a HIPAA violation. So we don't know what the problems were with Correa. Nobody in the public is like, what, dude? We know he's had uh, some back stuff. We know he's had an ankle thing. We know he's had a hip, like, we can speculate, but nobody actually knows what is going on behind the scenes. So he agrees to terms with the Mets on a 12-year, $315 million contract. And at this point now, he has he has agreed to over $600 million worth of contract money between two different teams. Then the Mets have to go through the physical process with Correa, as they do, doing their due diligence. And... The agreement happened between Met, the Mets and Correa on the 21st. On the 24th, reports start surfacing about the Mets' concerns with Carlos Correa's physical. Apparently, as the concerns started to come out and more and more information became available to the public and as stuff you know generally just tends to leak out, they're finding out that the issue the Giants came up with in the physical process and then now the Mets are coming across is the long-term well-being of Carlos Correa and his ankle, specifically an ankle he's had concerns with. At this point, the gigantic 12-year, $315 million contract between the Mets and Correa is now off the table, and they re-enter renegotiations because at this point, nobody's going to give Correa the long-term contract that he's looking for. They may give him the average annual value. I think he, you know, he wanted north of 27, 28, 29 million a year. He could probably still get that, but nobody's going to agree to sign this guy for 10 years after two different teams both came back doing their due diligence on this player and found there's some serious concern with his ankle. So the Mets are now renegotiating. Everybody knows that obviously Steve Cohen the owner of the Mets and the Mets in general as a team are operating on uh, as a loose cannon fire on all just throw money at the issue sort of approach in this offseason. So people are saying, well, okay, the Giants are a little bit more cautious. They don't quite as have, you know, they're not operating the same way that the Mets are where they still want to be able to make sure their investments and their money are getting allocated towards resources that will return on those investments. The Mets, however, and Steve Cohen are not operating in the same way. And just give me the best players, whatever it takes, whatever amount of money. So my indication and a lot of people's indications around the game of baseball was that Correa was going to find his way back to the Mets. It would just be on a different deal that would get restructured for a shorter amount of time. And that would be the end of it. That's Christmas Eve. Fast forward, January 10th. Two days ago, Carlos Correa reaches a six-year, $200 million agreement with the Minnesota Twins. At this point, Carlos Correa slash Scott Boris have negotiated over $800 million worth of money for Carlos Correa in one offseason, which I don't know if that's an actual, you know, quantified record, but I'd have to imagine because of the rare occurrences of a player not passing his physical, that that's got to be some sort of record for a total dollar amount of money that a player has negotiated for himself. With the Twins and Carlos Correa, talk started to accelerate on the 9th 
the Twins were always interested in Correa. They always wanted him in some capacity. They just could not keep up with what the Mets and Giants were offering as far as the back end of the agreement, right? The final five years, the final six years, where they are still going to be having Correa on the books at $29 million a year, $31 million a year. The Twins weren't prepared to commit to that term of long term of a contract. And then he fails his physical with the Giants. He fails his physical with the Mets. Everything falls into place. And essentially, Correa lands back in the lap of the Minnesota Twins, who I feel had way more leverage than they actually had at the beginning of the, of the negotiation process. At the start of it, Correa had a bunch of different suitors, a bunch of teams interested in him, a lot of dollar amounts, a lot of years. And the Twins just couldn't keep up as a mid-market team. And it totally makes sense. But as time goes on, Correa begins to lose value on a week-by-week basis. And every time a physical comes back with concerns, he starts to lose value. He starts to lose value. Next thing you know, it falls right in the Minnesota Twins' lap. And they're able to commit to a six-year agreement to a guy who's 28 years old, two-time All-Star, $200 million a year, or $200 million total over a span of six years. If you're going to give a guy $33 million a year, you have to know that you're going to get production out of him. And that's the risk that the Twins didn't want to take at the back end of the long-term contract that Correa was getting offered by other teams. So they signed into a six-year deal, $200 million, and Carlos Correa had now agreed to $365 million, $315 million, $200 million, totaling if my math is correct, to $880 million worth of free agency money between three different teams. Absolutely unbelievable. I, I can't believe there's so much money being associated with one single guy. Hats off to the Twins for being able to play themselves back into this situation and kind of take advantage of what was going on. It ended up working out really well for the Minnesota Twins. Again, most people's concerns are that the Twins just simply aren't going to be really competitive and that they kind of just made a splash to make a splash. But they get their guy, Correa. He was ranked on a lot of people's boards as a top five available free agent this offseason behind guys like Judge and DeGrom and Trey Turner. Or like I said, there's a lot of debate between which shortstop, free agent shortstop, was really the best available. In a lot of people's minds, it was Carlos Correa. So Correa ends up with the Twins, six years, $200 million, and single-handedly levied himself out of <laughs> over $600 million. But at the end of the day, he gets his $33 million a year. The Twins get their shortstop, and Correa had to have set a record for money committed to a single player in an offseason. So, that's Correa to the Twins. Good for him, right? I mean, ultimately, he's going to be productive. I don't know what the entire story is about the ankle. I don't know what... I don't know what the official medical diagnosis is, right? I don't think anybody is gonna... I don't think anybody has access to that information besides the Twins medical staff and the Giants and the Mets. So I hope all the best for Correa and the Twins, 
right? You never want to wish anybody poor. But then as Correa, so as this whole Carlos Correa situation has started to unfold, right? Correa is a new, newer father. He's got a young uh, baby that, that he just had with his wife. And videos are coming out about Correa playing around with his kid and doing all this really cute, fun stuff. And I've seen some commentary about these videos and Carlos Correa and how well he's making a great father. I saw one comment in particular that was like, uh, Correa looks like he's a great dad. I wonder if his kid will ever find out that he's a cheater, basically, right? And what's mind-boggling to me is that if you, I'll frame it this way. If you're one of those people that truly believes in your heart that Carlos Correa on the Astros and a few of the other Astros players were the only players cheating or using technology or stealing signs in some capacity in the mid to late 2010s, you are sadly mistaken and operating on an incredibly oblivious baseline because I can tell you confidently that not only were the Astros not the only ones doing it, but a handful of the best players at the time, according to the data, would have excellent cases against them as to how they were cheating. There's a handful of players specifically where, and I'm not going to name names, okay? Because I don't want to question the integrity and nobody knows definitively if some of these players were cheating in some capacity. But what I can tell you is this. There are a lot of players looking at their statistics on a year in and year out or even a career average basis participating from 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, or guys called up, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, who had pretty good numbers, pretty good players, pretty solid contributors at the major league level. And then somewhere around 17, 18, 19, all the years before the Astros cheating scandal actually broke, which keep in mind was actually in the offseason between the 2019 season and the 2020 season. That is when the news broke about the 2017 specific cheating situation. So that was three years before the news broke, right? That leaves 2017 open and available for anybody to use any sort of sign-stealing situation, and the MLB either knows about it and isn't doing anything about it, or they they don't know anything about it, which would probably explain how the Astros were able to literally bang on trash cans and get away with it. But 17's an open year for anybody and everybody to figure out a way to steal signs using technology. So is 2018, so is 2019. When you look at a number of different players and their offensive contributions to their teams, you start to see a pattern of, like I said, a handful of players. It's not everybody in the league. And I can, I can assure you that there are a lot of different teams and a lot of different organizations and a lot of different players that weren't cheating at any level or in any capacity. One I could say, for example, one I could say confidently is the San Diego Padres as my favorite team behind me. Looking at 
their offensive production as a team back in 2017, 18, 19. Unless they were, or I should say, if they were cheating in some capacity, they were doing a really bad job of it because their numbers as a team offensively were abysmal. On the other hand, as I've mentioned, a handful of different players on a handful of different teams saw a steady increase of offensive production 16, 17, 18, 2019. They start putting up numbers that people around the league look at and go, this guy's legit. Or on the flip side, or I guess on the tail end of that, and this may just be uh, a contribution because of how funky the 2021 season was and the timeline and the preparation and, and the routine that these guys go through on a daily basis and things like that. I totally understand how strange the 2020 season was. But the disparity in contribution and production between a handful of players and their 2018-2019 contributions and what they did after that, 2020, 2021, and 2022. It's hard for me to believe, looking at the disparity of these handful of players and how steep the drop-off was in production over one offseason, one year, I can definitely conclude, at least in my own heart, that the Astros and the players on the Astros were not the only ones cheating. So if you sit back and you tell me that you don't like Correa and you don't like Altuve and you don't like George Springer and all these other players that were on the Astros when they won the World Series and they were caught using technology to steal signs, I hate to break it to you, but they weren't the only ones doing it. They were just the only ones stupid and egregious enough to just bang on trash cans and make it as obvious as possible. They were careless. These other players and these other teams had different ways of doing it. I promise you they did. You just never found out about it. And the reason you never found out about it is because Major League Baseball wouldn't let that information get out. The Astros one was blown up all over social media because they were so egregious, it was impossible to not notice it once you went back and watched the tape. But with these other teams, there was really no way to prove it. They weren't under the investigation that the Astros were. And those other teams didn't win the World Series. So there was no incentive by the league or by the people to grill these other players or these other teams that were having other high levels of success because they didn't win at all, which is the ultimate prize. So even if Major League Baseball knew about these other teams doing it, which I can assure you they were, it would never make it public. They would never make it available for people to see because that would put a huge tarnish and damper on the sport of baseball. That's why you didn't hear about it. Anybody else who thinks the Astros were just the only ones stealing signs, you already saw the Red Sox get popped for it in, a, in another capacity. They had uh, technology that dug out with Apple watches and, and a little bit more of an elaborate sign stealing situation. And it involved runners on second base specifically it probably included a little bit more than that. That's just the extent that Major League Baseball wanted the people to know about. Because if you're going to go as far as allowing technology in the dugout, or I should say the Red Sox case, 
bringing technology into the dugout, wearing an Apple Watch, conveying signs in some way or another, you're probably not just going to limit it to when there's guys on second base, especially considering the dimensions and the layout of Fenway Park and where the cameras are located in center field and the batter's eye and everything else. It's hard for me to believe that they weren't doing it in a little bit more elaborate way than what was portrayed to the public. And the Astros were obvious about it. They were egregious about it. And I'm not going to sit here and defend them using technology to steal signs. But what I am going to do is I am going to, I, I am going to provide perspective to people who truly believe that the Astros were the only ones cheating because I can tell you definitively that they were not the only ones cheating. They weren't. They just absolutely weren't. They're just the ones that got caught. Now, the other parts about it where Correa and Bregman and Altuve didn't really seem to express a ton of remorse, right? The way they handled it afterwards, that's a completely different discussion. And that's a situation where I tend to agree with most people because they came out and they were basically flippant and ignorant and did not take any accountability in, in the situation, right? They come out in the spring training uh, of 2020 before COVID happened, right? They come out in spring training, the news breaks. It's a huge controversy and all these different things happen. They hold a press conference. They're all reading off of a piece of paper that was written and given to them by some PR lady that worked for the Astros and they didn't care. They didn't mean any of it. They, they, they were ignorant about it. And I think to some extent, as you can probably remember, I, the reason why they weren't so, in my opinion, this is this is all speculation, but I think it's a contributing factor. The reason why they didn't express maybe as much remorse, or they were a little bit as flippant about the whole situation, they seemed to kind of just brush it off and act like it wasn't a big deal is because I think all along the Astros players knew in the back of their head or actually definitively knew through one source or another that there were other teams stealing signs and cheating also in some capacity. So they probably felt like, why are we the ones sitting up here getting absolutely roasted? When at the end of the day, we know that this guy or this team or this organization is also relaying signs using technology. And I think on top of it, the way you could tell how certain players did or didn't use the technology or cheat in some capacity is the overall reaction to the entire situation. You have situations, you have guys like Carlos Correa who wasn't very remorseful and kind of ignorant about it. Same with Bregman, same with Altuve to some extent. And then you get asked about it as a player on off the team. Marwin Gonzalez wasn't on the Astros at the time and got asked about it and was extremely remorseful. And he was humiliated in some capacity. He expressed that. And that was good to see from some people. Then you ask other players on other teams what their evaluation is of the situation. You get quotes and stuff like Chris, from Chris Bryant when he was on the Chicago Cubs at the time, sitting there going, man, what a disgrace. This is just despicable. These guys got off easy. All this different stuff. Pretty strong remarks and stuff that I was able to take back and go, wow. You know, I could probably 
conclude from that situation that if there was a deeper investigation going on or somebody else was able to to question Chris Bryant or just go through the entirety of the league, right, investigate, well, was this team cheating? Was this team cheating? Just to do a full sweep, I could say pretty confidently that, that Chris Bryant would come up completely innocent because you don't come out and say those types of things if you don't actually mean it and you didn't actually think that you'd be able to stand up underneath the same investigation that the Astros got. On the flip side, a lot of different players got asked about it and decided to maybe just for PR relations sake, right, or just didn't want to offend anybody or wanted to stay out of it. Yeah, you know, those are all good excuses, and, and I could I can understand some of that to a certain extent. But a lot of players got asked about it and had sort of uh, impartial responses or approaches. Yeah, you know, it's an unfortunate circumstance. You know, you hate to see uh, anything happen and that would jeopardize the integrity of the game. But, you know, ultimately, that's an organizational thing that they're going to have to deal with. And, and we're with our team over here. And that's just the way it's going to be. Hmm. That was a little bit dodgy, right? So I'm not saying that everybody who dodged it or, or wanted to talk about it was stealing signs and using technology. But. What I can tell you is the Astros weren't the only ones stealing signs. They just weren't. They weren't. There's 30 MLB teams. You're telling me one team, only one team, was stealing signs in some capacity. And the other 29 were just la-di-da, throwing flower petals in the air. Let's all play fair and square. You already saw the Red Sox get busted for it, so you know that's not true. I'm just saying, keep an open mind to that conversation. And give these other guys a little bit of a break, all right? Carlos Correa is not a bad human being. Altuve is not a bad human being. George Springer, all these other guys, they're not bad people, okay? They were given an opportunity to increase their level of play under the impression that they wouldn't be jeopardizing the entire sport. And in doing so, they took the opportunity and made mistakes. But guess what? Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody, in some way or another, is not perfect. And in the case of Carlos Correa and Altuve and Springer and all these other guys, you know, maybe they are a little bit more imperfect than the rest. But to sit there and say Correa is not a good player or Altuve is not a good player because they cheated or they were the only ones cheating, you're dead wrong. And you have to understand that that's not the way to go about treating these guys. And that's not the way to think about the entire situation. So... That's where I feel, uh, you know, that's where I stand with the Correa situation, man. Because I see these comments on Twitter. I see this stuff going down. I see this stuff where it's like, it, it's like, oh, Correa, like, is he going to tell his kid he's a big fat cheater? Like, all this stuff. I'm like, dude, shut up. I don't know. Is this other guy going to tell his kid that he cheated when he had a fucking 1,200 OPS in 2019 and then 2020 came around and he forgot how to hit the baseball? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. That will cover the Twins and the Carlos Correa situation. Lastly, let me take a sip here of this Fresca. Fresca, by the way, absolutely goaded.
Caesars Sportsbooks and all the other sportsbooks have come out with their definitive list. I don't know if I'd call it even a list. Let me say it this way. The sportsbooks have come out with 2023 Major League Baseball win totals, and they've listed numbers for each team, and I'm going to tell you whether they're going to go over that number, under that number, uh, for total wins. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'm going to tell you definitively if each team is going to go over the number they're given or under the number they're given for win totals in 2023. So, MLB win totals, 2023. American League East, we'll start with it and we'll run through it. And we'll give you a little bit of background on why we think each team's going to go over or under. But specifically, we're going to give you the number that they were listed at and tell you which direction it's going to be and some background. So, MLB win totals, 2023, starting with the American League East. The Yankees are listed at 95 and a half. Uh, actually, 95. The Yankees listed at 95 wins. I'm going to take the over. I think they're going to win more than 95 games. I think they're going to win around 100, whether that's 98, 99, 101, right? They re-sign Judge. They get Rodon. They've improved as an organization and as a team. They lost Tyon, but they get Rodon. Like, that's a huge upgrade. It's a huge improvement. They won 99 games last year, and they're basically the exact same team. So there's no reason why they wouldn't at least replicate that to some degree. Up next is the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays are listed at 94 and a half. This one's a little bit tougher for me. Because I think they they had a lot of guys last year that just had a pretty down year. They had they won 92 games last season. That being said. I think the Blue Jays go right under 94 and a half. I think right under 94 and a half. Give me like 93 for the Blue Jays. Up next is Tampa Bay, right? The Rays, the weird Tampa Bay Rays. What do they do? How do they continue to win? What is going on? What are they? What are they? What are they? 87 and a half for the Rays. They won 86 last year. I don't know how much better they got, if at all. So I'm gonna take the under on 87 and a half, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put them at about the same they were at last year, 86, 85, 84. They're gonna be over 500. They're always gonna be competing for a playoff spot to some degree, especially with the expanded playoffs. But ultimately, the Rays are going to go under 87 and a half in the 2023 season. Up next is the Red Sox, listed at 76 and a half. They lose Bogarts. Trevor Story out for the year. 76 and a half. How about way under 76 and a half for the Red Sox next year? They won 78 games last year with Bogarts and with Story contributing to their team. They are going to be really bad this year. The Red Sox are not going to be a good baseball team. I got them at about 72 wins this year, 73. They're not going to be like historically a hundred win or a hundred loss team this year, but they're going to win 73, 72. Somewhere in there. And lastly, in the American League East, is the Orioles listed at 77 and a half. Last year, they won 83 games. There's no chance that the Orioles are just four games worse this year than they were last year. Yeah, you know what? Last year, they had a little bit of that fluky magic luck, things, whatever you want to say. But the Orioles are building for exactly what's going on with them, which is... Couple of bad years a few years ago, then a couple of decent years, 
then in a year where they exceed expectations, and now they're going to be going all in on it this year. They're going to have all their prospects up and ready to go, contributing at a high level. The Orioles are going to go way over 77.5 wins, way over. They won 83 games last year. Put them at 84, 85. Put the Orioles in the playoffs, potentially. 77.5, that is brutally low, absolutely brutally low. Up next is the American League Central. The Guardians are listed as the highest win total in the AL Central at 87. Last year, they won 92. And if I'm being as honest as I can, I think the Guardians were a little bit fluky last year with a really low payroll, a bunch of inexperienced guys. They played really well, but they also played off a division that was historically bad in almost every capacity. That being said, 87, I'm going to take the over and put them at 88. One game over their total, which will get them into the playoffs as a wild card team, but that's all that they're going to be next year is a wild card team and probably bounced in the first round. Up next is the White Sox, listed at 84 and a half. They won 81 games last year. They went 500 on the nose, and 84 and a half seems like a pretty low number for them. So I'm also going to take the over for the White Sox, put them at like 88 or 89. I think they're a good team. I think they have good players, they have great pitching. I think the White Sox will bounce back, and they got a, they got rid of uh, Tony La Russa. Just shouldn't happen in the first place, so I'm going to go White Sox at 84.5 over 84.5. Up next is the Twins, listed at 77.5, right? Minnesota Twins, 77.5 wins. Last year, they won 78. How do you make the decision? How do you make the discrepancy? I think you take the under for the Twins. 77 and a half is a decent number. I got them at 75. I'm going to take the under for the Minnesota Twins. Tigers listed at 70 and a half wins. I'm sorry, but there's nothing about the, the Detroit Tigers this year that tells me that they're going to win more than 70 and a half games. I'm going to take the under. They're going to win 69 games this year, which is a slight improvement from last year because they won 66 but they're going to win under 70 and a half. The Royals are listed at 69 and a half. Also going to be taking the under in this situation. And I'm going to have to take the under if I'm taking the over with the White Sox, the over with the Guardians. But the Royals are, and the Royal, one thing to remember is that the Royals, Tigers, and all these other teams aren't going to be playing not only in division as much, but they're going to be playing around the league, around everywhere, American League and National League. They're going to play everybody at least once. So that means the Royals aren't just going to play the Tigers and the Twins 19 times each and have the opportunity to win a bunch more games. They're going to play a bunch of other teams that are really good. So the Royals at 69 and a half, I'm going to take way under 69 and a half, put them around 60 for me. In the American League West, the Astros are listed at 97 and a half wins for this season. Last year, they won 106. Who did they lose? Justin Verlander. Who did they gain? Jose Abreu. Uh, they're going to win more than 97 and a half. They're going to win at least 100 games. Take the over on Astros at 97 and a half. Seattle's listed at 89 and a half. They won 90 last year. I think the Mariners are a good team. I think last year they had a ton of that magic luck and stuff as well. I still think they get into the postseason. I think they're a wild card team but I'm going to take under 89 and a half, put them about 87, 88. And it's going to be really close. That's a great number for them at 89 and a half. Up next is the Rangers. Texas Rangers listed at 80.5 wins. Huge jump 
from last year when they won 68 games. They did make a ton of improvements to their pitching rotation. They made they they bolstered up their lineup a little bit. 80 and a half is still too high of a jump for me, especially considering I think DeGrom's going to be hurt for half the year, just like he normally is because he's 35 years old and you can't throw 102 miles an hour when you're that old. So 68 to 80 and a half, huge jump. Rangers at 80 and a half. I'm taking under 80 and a half for the Rangers next year. Moving on to the uh, LA Angels, right? The Angels are listed at 79 and a half. Last year, they won 73. Another six or seven win jump for a team like the Angels. I do it every year, and I don't know why. Probably because it's because I, I want Mike Trout to see the postseason, and I want him to succeed. And I like Otani, and Rendon's coming back healthy, and they got Tyler Anderson. I think the Angels go over 79 and a half, and I keep drinking the LA Angels Kool-Aid. I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm going to take 81, 82 for the Angels. Probably still miss the playoffs. Probably still another disappointing outcome for Mike Trout not getting into the postseason, but they're going to go over 79 and a half. So Angels, 79 and a half over. Last in the American League West, Oakland A's are listed at 60 and a half. Give me the under. I mean, they're going to win 56 games this year. They're going to be historically bad. I don't want to hear anything about it. They don't spend any money. They stink. Give me under for the Oakland A's. Moving on. And I had to think about this one for a second. Because the National League East is very, very, very interesting. Very interesting. You got the New York Mets. You got the Braves. You got the Phillies, Marlins, Nationals. All those first three teams made huge, significant improvements in some capacity. Or at least they they had players either leaving or coming or making an impact that would contribute to their win total. So in the National League East, Mets are listed at 96 and a half. They won 101 games last year. Yeah, they lost to Grom. Yeah, they lost Tywin Walker, but they also got Verlander. They also got Quintana. So the Mets at 96 and a half, I'm going to take the over. They're going to win, if not 100, right around 100, 98, 99, over on the Mets, 96 and a half. The Braves are listed at 94 and a half. Also a disgustingly low number. The Braves won 101 games last year. They won the division. Yeah, they lost Dansby, but they have Grissom to step into a spot. They're going to have a full year of Ozzie Albies, who missed a ton of last season. And ultimately, the Braves are going to go over 94 and a half. Up next is the Phillies, listed at 88 and a half. Last year, they won 87. They got into the postseason. They, everybody knows they made a run to the World Series. They're the exact same team, and they added Trey Turner, coming off of a World Series appearance. And you're going to put them at 88 and a half. Also, disgustingly, also a disgustingly low number. They're going to go over 88 and a half. The Marlins are listed at 72 and a half. It's an interesting number for the Marlins because they do have incredibly good pitching. Last year, they won 69 games. Are they getting three games better? Here's my answer. No, they're not going to. Take the under on Marlins to 90, uh, 72 and a half wins for 2023. Last in the NL East, the Nationals listed at 61 and a half wins. Last year, they won 55 games. They also traded away on Soto. Under 61 and a half. I got 53, 54 wins for this Nationals team next year. 
they're going to be bad. They're going to be really bad. Moving on. National League Central Division. Very intriguing. A little bit more top-heavy, as is the case for a few of these divisions. The Cardinals are the top team in the NL Central. St. Louis is listed at 89.5. Last year, they won 93. How much worse did they get from last year? Not at all. In fact, they upgraded in some areas. N not only exclusively including, but mentioning Wilson Contreras going to the St. Louis Cardinals. 89.5. The Cardinals are a historically just winning franchise. 89.5, too low for the cards. They're going to go over 89.5. 89 Give me like 92, 93. Cardinals, 89.5 over. Milwaukee Brewers listed at 84.5. Last year they won 86. Hear me out on this. Brewers lose Hater. Brewers have nothing else to buy into. Yeah, they have really good starting pitching. That's about it. Yelich can't hit anymore. Locaine's gone. Give me the under for the Brewers at 84 and a half. Give me the under. Up next is the Cubbies. Listed at 78. The Cubs got significantly better in this offseason. Dansby Swanson, Jamison Tyon, Cody Bellinger, depending on where you sit on him, but they signed him. 78 for the Cubs. Win total. Last year they won 74. Did they get four games better this year? Here's my answer. Yes. Cubs at 78 wins. Take the over. Up next is Cincinnati, listed at 64 and a half. Last year, they won 62. Is there any reason for me to believe they got two games better from last year? Here's an answer. Absolutely, they did not. 64 and a half wins for the Reds. Take the under. Last in the NL Central, the Pirates listed at 62 and a half. Last year, they won 62 games. I'm going to take the over on the Pittsburgh Pirates at 62 and a half. They're not going to be much over 62 and a half, probably 64 or 65, but they have a ton of dudes in their farm system. They have a ton of prospects to be working with this year that are just going to play loose, going to play relaxed. And I think they're going to win more than 62 and a half games, but they're still not going to be very good. So over on the Pirates, 62 and a half. Last but not least, the National League West. The LA Dodgers are listed at 98 and a half wins. Last year, they won 111. They are losing Trey Turner. They are losing Justin Turner. They are losing Cody Bellinger. And I don't really care. 98 and a half wins for the Dodgers. Give me the over. They're going to win at least 100. They didn't get 13 games worse than they were last year. They're gonna be over a hundred. Uh, they're gonna be over hundred wins. So Dodgers ninety eight and a half. Give me the over. The Padres are up next. My San Diego Padres ninety three and a half wins is their win total. They won eighty nine last season. Ninety three and a half is an egregiously low number for the Padres. Padres are gonna win at least ninety five if not 100 wins. That's the expectation for the Padres this year, and I don't see any reason why they shouldn't get to 100 wins, especially considering they don't have to play the division 19 times apiece, historically, where the Dodgers kick their ass and the Rockies, for some reason, just destroy the Padres. So, that being said, the Padres are going to spread the love a little bit, uh, spread the love a little bit more around the league. They're going to play a bunch of different teams. They're going to travel around. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They're going to go over 93 and a half. So Padres win total over 93 and a half. The Giants are listed at 78 and a half. They won 81 games last year. 
and they didn't get Correa. They didn't get Judge. Give me the under for the Giants at 78 and a half. Give me the under. D-backs listed at 76 and a half. They won 74 last year. Did they get three games better? Yes, they did. They have a ton of prospects. They traded away Dalton Varsho, which was an interesting move, but they picked up Lourdes Gurriel. The D-backs at 76 and a half. Give me the over on the D-backs win total. I like that. And last but not least, on this entire MLB win total segment here, the Colorado Rockies listed at 68 and a half. They won 68 last year. And the Rockies are going to be really bad this year. They're going to be really bad. They're going to go under 68 and a half. So Rockies at 68 and a half wins. Give me the under. And with that, we will conclude episode 29 of Between the Stitches. Baseball only show. Part of Phenomenal Fan Media. We appreciate you guys. We love you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this entire episode of our breakdown of the Carlos Correa situation. Some hot takes, some drops, some this, some that. If you haven't checked us out already on YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the above, none of the above, be sure to check us out on social media. Subscribe to our Patreon if you guys enjoy this type of content or exclusive content on Patreon. And otherwise, we will catch you guys on episode 30, bit of a milestone episode, of Between the Stitches. Adios. Thanks for listening to Between the Stitches. Follow Phenomenal Fan Media on social media for more. And subscribe on Patreon for exclusive content.